Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Thyroid cancer is on the rise, and since next month is National Thyroid Cancer Awareness Month, it's a great opportunity to discuss this potentially devastating condition and why early diagnosis is essential to providing a greater chance of a cure. Dr. Shane Morita is rejoining us here in the studio to share his expertise with the diagnosis and treatment of thyroid cancer. He's an endocrine and oncologic surgeon and program director at Queen's Medical Center and on the faculty at John A. Burns School of Medicine. He's also brought along two patients to share their experience with being diagnosed with thyroid cancer and how their treatment plans have gone. But first in medical news, we have great research projects happening right here in Hawaii. And two more of Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research Scholars on the show to tell us what projects they worked on for the last few weeks. And they can now share with us the outcome of their studies. They did a great presentation last Thursday, and that was really helping to highlight some of the hard work they've put in for the last eight weeks of what a lot of college students think of as their summer vacation. These guys made it a summer research event, which certainly will be great in their future careers as doctors hopefully coming back here to the islands. First to my right, we have Holly Ann Louie. Now, Holly, you're at UH, you're going into your senior year in molecular and cell biology, and you did a real interesting study looking at cancer surgery here in a community hospital versus some of the major cancer centers on the mainland. Tell me a little bit about your project. Um, so our project looked at the outcomes for a major oncologic surgery done here at Straub by a single surgeon, Dr. Maldini, and we compared ourselves to high-volume cancer centers, including Massachusetts General Hospital, the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Mm -hmm. And the different types of procedures that we looked at were esophagogastric, hepatobiliary, pancreatic, rectal, and retroperitoneal mass resections. So these are big surgeries that are done for people diagnosed with probable cancer, and in the past, we used to send a lot of these folks to the mainland to have their surgeries done. And a lot of people feel like their social support network and their family are locally here in the islands. So they may not want to travel really far. And one of the questions I bet they would ask a surgeon is, what are your complication rates? And can I do it here successfully? Or do I have to go travel to somewhere like you mentioned, uh, you know, Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson or uh, Mass General? So what was the what were the findings? What what are the results? Is it? Would you have surgery here? I would have surgery here, yes. So our sample size was 136 cases, and it's a lot smaller than the thousands of cases that we compared ourselves to for the major high-volume cancer centers. However, when we did a cursory comparison with basic statistics, we found that our numbers were largely comparable to these high-volume centers. So... Um, definitely more research and a longer time period would be great. So we did it over a seven-year time span. But um, in the future, if we keep going and just keep monitoring results, I think it'll be very reassuring for patients in the future. And the reason that we did it was because Dr. Maldini, he encounters a lot of patients that prior to um, him coming here and doing operations, they would have to go to the mainland. And they always talked about just having to travel long distances and 
all the increased costs and the emotional struggle because their family is all back here in the islands. Well, absolutely. When you think about having a big major surgery, particularly with the complication rates that you might have, you want to make sure that you're safe and you're making the right decision if you want to stay home. But you also want to make sure that you're not missing out on expertise on the mainland with the surgical portion of it. Certainly, there's other aspects of being diagnosed with cancer. We're going to talk a little bit about thyroid cancer today. But you're right, there's a cost associated with it. There's an emotional aspect. And it's nice for somebody to be able to say, hey, we've done the research. We've looked at this. And for these types of procedures, you could do it here. Now, tell me, what is your future as far as school and medical school? You want to finish college and you're going to start applying? Correct. So right now, I'm going to be entering my senior year at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And I am also currently applying to medical school. And I'm pretty excited. So right now, I'm working on my secondaries. And hopefully by next year's spring, I'll have a pretty set idea on where I'm going to go to medical school or what I'm going to be doing in the future. Fantastic. Well, we do hope that you come back here to the islands to share all those great things that you've learned, not just in this research project, but also just in medical school and in training in general, so that we can have more expertise right here at home. All right. And thanks again to Dr. Maldini for participating in that research program. Did you get a chance to watch watch some surgeries? I did. I actually watched a lot of surgeries this summer, but um, I was able to watch Dr. Maldini do a right extended hepatectomy and biliary bypass so it was for major bile duct cancer and it was it was a seven hour procedure but it was really interesting because that was actually one of the procedures that we looked at in our study so it put a really nice perspective on it wow a seven hour surgery i give you both credit (laughs) i mean you know those that that kind of surgery is is sort of you're in it for the long haul and uh, definitely happy to hear that we have that expertise here in the islands and maybe someday we'll hear that you're bringing even more expertise right here home. So thanks so. so much for being on the show and for sharing your expertise, sharing what you did this summer. You gave up your summer vacation. You decided to do some research and we can all benefit from that. So thanks for sharing that with us, Halian. Oh, thank you. All right, Tiffany Lau, you did some research on cruciate ligament reconstruction. You're going to be a junior at Carnegie Mellon University out there in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. I have a brother who lives nearby. He actually went to CMU. It's a great part of the country if you can survive the winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're finishing up a degree in biology. Tell me a little bit about your summer experience and what sort of study you did. So uh, this summer I did an anterior cruciate ligament uh, reconstruction outcome um, research study with Dr. Chang, and we looked at the outcomes of anterior cruciate ligament or ACL reconstructions. So we compared the two types of anterior anterior cruciate ligament um, grafts that he would use, autograft and allograft, and we looked at whether there was more pain associated with one graft type or whether there were um, a higher number of graft failures associated with a particular graft type, things like that. So what are the differences between these types of grafts? So an autograft it comes from one's own tissue, whereas an allograft comes from a cadaver. So there's various controversies associated with both. Um, one controversy um, with autografts is donor site morbidity because to uh, use the graft um, from your own tissue, you have to make an extra incision, you introduce more trauma, and that site uh, becomes vulnerable to donor site morbidity, whereas for allografts, you have um, the potential 
um, complication of disease transmission, although very low. And then there's also a higher failure rate um, for patients who choose an allograft if they're younger and more active, typically. Okay, so if you're doing an autograft, so you're taking tissue from yourself, where are you getting it from? Uh, you usually get it from the posterior tibialis uh, tendon or, oh, I'm, excuse me, um, you said autograph? Um, yeah, if that, you're, sorry. an autograph. <laughs> where are you getting it from? So you're getting uh, this tissue. Where does it come from? Uh, this would be the patellar tendon <laughs> okay, for so an autograph, right. So you take a little bit of a tendon and you turn it into a cruciate ligament, sort of. Right. And then the study that you did compared that to an allograft, which is... You know, unfortunately, deceased person's tendon. Mm-hmm. Okay. And who did better? Um, so the research study showed that there were uh, less, paci- less um, cases of patellofemoral pain or knee pain generally and uh, with uh, autographs. So if you're looking in terms of long-term outcome and, like, pain, autographs were... Uh, the better choice, which was rather okay. unusual because that's not what one might expect. As I've said earlier, that autographs are typically associated with donor site morbidity, which can cause knee pain. But um, that's what the study showed. And we're still in the middle of the study. Um, this summer, I worked on part two of a, I guess, three-year study. So, so what you found is if you use your own tissue, you have less pain. Right. Okay. And so this was part of a three-part study, so then you just have to come back (laughs) and do part three. If you'll have me. (laughs) Okay. Well, did you hear that, Dr. Spencer Chang? If you're listening out there, you've got a request. Help uh, Help you, help yourself, help Tiffany, help all of us to learn more about ACL reconstruction. Should you use your own tissue or tissue from a cadaver? And which way will make it the most pain-free procedure that you can recover from? Sounds like an excellent sort of question that we have to ask ourselves because I'm sure that people who have these ACL tears say, well, which one is better, doc? And it's nice to have that data to say, here's the experience that we've got with the surgery that I did. Here's the last X number of years of cases, and here's what we found. So they get a real-world, real-life answer. Fantastic. All right. And your goal is to go to medical school. Is that right? Yes, that is my goal. Fantastic. I hope your goal is to come home here and share some of that knowledge with us right back here at home. I would love to come back. All right. Well, we're not putting you in the commitment category yet, but (laughs) in a few years, I might play the show for you again where you said you would. You never know. (laughs) Careful what you say that goes on a podcast. All right. Well, thanks to both of you, summer student research scholars. You put in a good eight weeks of the summer to do some really good science research. And I hope that you learned a lot, and I hope that we can learn a lot from you in the near future. So thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you for having us. All right. And thanks to the docs who are also your mentors. A lot of hard work goes into this program. I I was there last Thursday listening to the presentations, and I'm always humbled by the amount of work that the students put in, but also by how little I remember of statistics, because a lot of the research they're doing, look at all these different graph models of statistics, and I just have 
nightmares of my own experience in medical school. So thank you guys for doing it and for sharing the basics with the rest of us. All right. Now let's talk about thyroid cancer. It is on the rise. And how could that be? A lot of other cancers are on the decline. Who's getting thyroid cancer? And do we here in the islands have a particular increased susceptibility? Well, Dr. Shane Morita is here to tell us more, and he's going to explain why we might be having more thyroid cancer cases and what are some of the latest treatments that we might have available. Now, in addition, in a few moments, we're going to have two of his patients who will tell their story. So if you ever wanted to know how does somebody find this out and what was what happened to them once they got it diagnosed, boy, we'll, we'll soon have those folks on the show. But as always, this is an experience that we want you to be part of as well. So if you'd like to join our conversation, you can at any time, 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor island friends, 877-941-3689. Dr. Morita, welcome back to The Body Show. Thanks for having me on. Always, always a pleasure. And now, thyroid <clears throat> cancer. Next month is National Thyroid Cancer Awareness Month. But tell me a little bit, what is the thyroid? Where is it? And what does it do? Sure. Th- the thyroid is a butterfly-shaped gland. It's located in the middle part of the neck, overlying your windpipe, also known as trachea. And basically, it drives our metabolism, our energy. So too much thyroid hormone, you, you feel like you're agitated and, you know, you can't sleep. Um not enough thyroid hormone, you're very sluggish, tired, you may lose some your hair. Uh, most pa- patients who have thyroid cancer have what we call a thyroid state, so they have a normal uh, thyroid level. So there is a way you can check a blood test to find out if your thyroid is a little too much or too little. Correct. I've always wished I had too much because mm. I want that feeling of energy and not being able to sit down, but... Uh, Nope, no such luck. Okay, I'll be happy I have a healthy thyroid. So when we talk about thyroid cancer, is there just one type or are there different types of thyroid cancer? There's different types. There's, uh, you know, there's carcinoma itself, um, which is the most common. But within that, there's subtypes. There's papillary, which is really um, what 80 to 90% of people are diagnosed with. Um, there's there's follicular. There's herthocell. Um, there's medullary, and there's also anaplastic, and it's believed that uh, Chief Justice of uh, the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, died of anaplastic. And so it's anaplastic, thankfully, it's very uh, low at, as far as the frequency, but it, it's extremely fatal. So you mentioned that there's about five types, I think you, you listed, and follicular is the most common. Papillary, Papillary is, is the most common. Fl- All right. Correct. And then there's the follicular and the medullary and hurdle and anaplastic. Correct. So papillary is the most common. What kind of stats are we looking at here? 80% of all thyroid cancers are papillary? Correct. About 80 to 90% of all thyroid cancers are papillary. Uh, fairly tr- easy, well treated with surgery, um, sometimes iodine and lifelong thyroid hormone because so, we're taking out the gland. Sure. So if you remove the thyroid, it's one of those uh, unique organs in the body that you can take a medication to replace its function. Correct. And in doing so, you could live without a thyroid. Yes. But you'd want to take medicine to make sure that you still had that metabolism because it really is the center of all of your energy and metabolism. Right. And in in many cases, too, we want to uh, have a little bit more thyroid hormone on board if we're, we're taking care of patients with thyroid cancer because too much TSH, which comes from the brain, can be a stimulus of uh, sort of waking up dormant thyroid cells. So that also helps in decreasing the chance of the thyroid cancer coming back. Sure. If the thyroid cells respond to a message that says we need hormone, then they also don't respond when there's extra hormone in the blood. So if they sense there's extra hormone, they won't 
do anything weird and try and make more because we've already decided these aren't so normal as these cells. Okay. Now, is it easy to diagnose thyroid cancer? You know, it's now most, I, w- I would say yes. Um, I would say the most thyroid cancer now is detected incidentally by imaging. You know, someone gets an MRI because they got into a car accident um, or they got an ultrasound because someone's looking at their carotid artery to see if there were any plaques from strokes or whatnot. Um, most is done quite quite frankly incidentally, but as far as feeling, you should be able to feel your thi- thyroid. Um, people will complain of a lump or they'll say, you know, their voices will change or they're having trouble breathing. But again, the vast majority that I see at least are incidental. All right. There's a couple of us here that want to like touch our thyroid. So if we were feeling for our thyroid, walk us through this. So where would we put our fingers? You put your f- fingers um, in the middle of your, basically the middle of your neck. and So find you, the middle. Okay, right. I'm there. One step. And Found around, the middle. N- near your Adam's apple or your laryngeal prominence, you'll feel okay. just to the side of it, on both sides in that region. You want to swallow. And the thyroid will actually move. And that's how you know it's a, it's a nodule within the thyroid is that you can see it and feel it upon uh, swallowing. So if you're doing this at home for yourself, you're feeling, and what you want to feel is maybe not notice anything. Correct. Normal would be I don't feel anything, or maybe I think I feel my thyroid, but nothing marbly or like a pee or nothing kind of like a bump. Or if if your thyroid is overly enlarged, you know, you could have a goiter, which is enlarged thyroid, but, you know, go and see your doctor to see if there's any nodules um, within it. Okay. So if you felt your thyroid, it felt okay, you feel okay, could you be okay? You could be okay, but again, sometimes these things are, are tricky and they'll hide and they'll they'll be small. And, you know, I know uh, many folks around the country will say, well, thyroid cancer, if it's small, um, you, you know, probably not as aggressive. But I, I think, you know, in doing some preliminary research here that I, I think we may have a different biology and that we still need to uh, be prudent and, and look to see they sometimes they can spread to the lymph nodes and being under a centimeter and definitely have taken care of patients like that. So should everybody be screened for it? No, I don't think anybody should be, I don't think everybody should be screened. I just think that um, if you have a positive family history, if you've been exposed to radiation, um, what's going now that's recent uh, with respect to radiation, as you know, is what ha- what what happened in Fukushima in 2011. So there's a lot of um, concern about thyroid cancer risk, and it's the risk is not necessarily a year later, but it it does happen in succeeding years, and it can be latent because the radiation effects can be latent. So. Well, and that actually goes along with some of the talk that we have about some of the people who have lived in Micronesia who were there during the Bravo testing. Right, Operation when they Bravo, were, correct. Uh, absolutely, when they were doing that testing and they were doing testing of, of nuclear bombs, etc., they may have been exposed to radiation. And in fact, the Department of Energy had a program there that I think is still in existence that was screening those folks with this high level of exposure to radiation for thyroid cancer, specifically for that reason. So are we talking a certain type of radiation? What about kids who might have had radiation for some other illness when they were younger? Are they at risk? Um, definitely. You know, I've taken care of patients, for example, who when they were adolescents got treated uh, with they had lymphoma for example, and they had radiation, uh, not necessarily from a fallout from a nuclear... You know, but nuclear something that you would be treated for another cancer. Correct. And okay. they, they have, you know, they also have uh, they, that, you know, 10, 20 years down the road and they ha- end up having thyroid cancer. 
So something to definitely keep in mind. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shane Morita, and we're talking a little bit about thyroid cancer and why if you have a family history or there's a radiation history of exposure, this is something that you want to pay attention to. Now, when we come back, we're going to hear from two people who have had this experience being diagnosed with thyroid cancer. We'll hear a little bit about how that happened for them, but we'll also talk a little bit about the unique susceptibility of our ethnic population here in the islands and what you can do if you have any concerns about it. As always, you can join our conversation at any time, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. New Letters on the Air remembers E.L. Doctorow, winner of many awards, most recently the 2014 Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction. I think all of us who do this kind of work have to trust it, trust that the process has a kind of legitimacy and it delivers truth. The past American voice of E.L. Doctorow on the next New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. A breeze rustling a bamboo grove, a quiet room full of memory. Darren Miyashiro, Sandy Tsukuyama, and Chris Molina take you there in an evening of contemporary Japanese koto and shakuhachi music on August 29th. A unique concert of exquisite artistry in HPR's Atherton Studio, Saturday the 29th, 7.30 p.m. Call 955-8821 during business hours or go to hprtickets.org. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shane Morita. And today we're talking about thyroid cancer. It does seem to be on the rise. National Cancer Institute has some incidence trends. I'm going to get that word out, I swear. Incidence trends. And what they're looking at is an increase from 2002 to 2011, 5.3% in men, 5.8% in women. Whereas a lot of other cancers are decreasing in the incidence, we're seeing certain cancers like thyroid increase. So that's why we're talking about it today. And the fact that Dr. Morita has some exciting news to tell us about medications that are now going to be used and a different way to approach this type of cancer than we may have in the past. Now, along with him, he has brought two fantastic folks I met a little earlier today, and they are people who have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. They're going to tell us their story, a little bit about what happened and what what they're doing right now and how this has affected them. So let's first talk with TK Hahnemann. TK, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and what happened and when you were diagnosed and share with us your story. Well, um First of all, I'd like to thank you for um, having me here. Thanks for being on. This afternoon. And um, how this all started, I guess it, I had a goiter in the left side of my throat. That's that enlargement kind of thing. Correct. Okay. Um, back in maybe 2009. And it continued to get bigger. Uh, my doctor at the time advised me to keep an eye on it. And we would take out the, the liquid at times and make it go down because it was cosmetically kind of irritating. Then I think it was the late 2010, we realized that there was something in the thyroid. So we took a biopsy and found that it was um, positive for cancer, if you will. 
and went in and took out the left side of my thyroid. Uh, and a week and a half later, took out my right side. Okay. So once you were watching it for a while, doing other sorts of procedures for this goiter, this enlargement, and once you found out there was a problem, you had surgery pretty quickly, had one side removed, then the other side removed. And what happened after that? Uh, we monitored it for a little while, and um, I had to go on radioactive iodine diet and did the, the radioactive iodine treatment. And it was sometime after that I took another scan and had found that he had come back to my thyroid. That's when we had Dr. Marita get involved, and he went in two times to remove the recurrence in my thyroid. Dr. Marita, tell us, is this common? So you get diagnosed, you have the thyroid taken out, you think you're good, and then TK got it back. Yeah, I, I think to answer your question, uh, more, than, more than I think people want to believe, I mean, there's a lot of reports, and we all know the data, that most patients with thyroid cancer do very well, you know, as, as far as papillary and follicular, which is what these, you know, our patients have. But um, sometimes it can come back. Up to 25% of the time it can come back. And sometimes it can be very aggressive, and sometimes they don't respond to iodine, and that's why we're going to talk about some of the options that are available now. So I always tell my patients, even though, um, you know, no matter what age, um, you know, you're diagnosed, you still need to get uh, surveillance. Now, what is the theory on iodine? Why would somebody need to have iodine as a treatment? So good question. So basically, after surgically we remove the thyroid, the iodine will... It's almost like a heat-seeking missile will will target the thyroid that has these these channels for the iodine, and it will kill any remaining thyroid cells in in most instances. Now, in, in you know up to five to fifteen percent of the time, the iodine doesn't work, and this is what we're we're faced with sometimes in patients who present with disease that has come back in not only in the thyroid uh, area, thyroidectomy area, but also in other parts of the body. So the thyroid loves iodine, and if you give it radioactive iodine, then essentially whatever thyroid cells that are left in the body after surgery, because there's always microscopic potential, Correct. then those cells should be killed by Correct. that. Correct, and, and okay. Mr. Hahnemann had mentioned that he went on a, a, a low iodine diet, and what, did it, what that is is after surgery, you want to starve the body of any iodine, so you deprive it of iodine, so then when you get the therapeutic iodine, these capsules, it will help, um, you know, uh, help these cells that are thirsty. They're for hungry for it. They want it. Um, let them have a little extra exactly. with radioactivity. Okay. Absolutely. So, what was your thiet? What was your iodine diet? What could you not eat, TK? What were you not allowed to have? I couldn't hardly eat anything. Anything. Yeah. All right. That well, sounds like every diet I can think of. Okay. Basically, my favorite foods I could not have, such as uh, dairy products, any kind of uh, any type of seaweed, seafood products, uh, anything with salt on it. So. Basically, cardboard. Yeah. You could eat cardboard. You could eat anything that didn't taste well. Okay. Yeah. That sounds fairly familiar, unfortunately. All right. So you had this treatment, and how did that go? Um, the treatment apparently worked for a while. Okay. And then we rescanned, and then it came back again. So I had another operation, went back on the low uh, iodine diet, radioactive iodine treatment for the second time, and. Um, came back again after that. So it's come back. The first time it came back, the second time, the third time. Yeah. So that's where you're at right now. Where I'm at, yes, correct. Where I'm at right now is it's clear of my thyroid glands, but it's spread to other parts of my, my lung and my left hip. 
Okay. And Dr. Moreto, what's next? At this point, after you've done the radioactive iodine treatment, what else can be done? Well, now, um, you know, since 2013, there's been a, f- a couple of drugs that have been FDA approved. Um, and so these are what we call kinase inhibitors. And what they do is go after certain targets that the tumor has and in hopes of controlling it. Now, none of them have shown to, you know, cause a definitive cure. I mean, the studies so far, the results that we have. But it's something that it's, it's definitely been a benefit uh, to patients. But the side effects can be can be difficult. And um, sometimes patients will have to cut their dose or even, you know, switch to a different, uh, you know, different drug. But, you know, these options are at least available now um, versus before we didn't have, have very many other options. So how is a kinase inhibitor administered? Is it a pill? A is pill. it an IV? Absolutely. It's a, it's a pill. And, and, and for purposes of thyroid cancer, what we're talking about today is the, what we call the refractory iodine. So we're primarily against papillary and and follicular, and for those that again don't respond to iodine, these are pills that are given, and they work to again go against the targets that are you know believed to be in the in the tumor, and um, and again it it can be very difficult to treat again thyroid cancer when it's you know remove it's no longer in the neck because on neck a surgeon can go ahead and remove it and he's clear you heard him say he's clear any disease in the neck, but, you know, what's, when it's in the bone or what's in the lung, sometimes in the lung surgery, it can be, surgery can be performed, but if it's in the bones and whatnot, um, it makes it much more challenging. Now, in this kind of a situation, is the thought that maybe it, the cells had spread prior to doing any of the surgery, and that's why they're in the lung and in the hip, or did they just migrate at some point? Or how do you get it to those other areas when that's not where your thyroid cells are supposed to go? You know, it's a good question. Sometimes it's believed that it's just present um, initially a diagnosis and, you know. All the treatment in the neck, it. you can't see it. Correct. It's too small. Correct. How would you know? Okay. Or it can just morph. It can change uh, biology and a switch will go on where a, a cancer cell that is just left behind for some reason will mutate and it it, will, it just won't respond to iodine. Now, the iodine should capture everything, but sometimes it doesn't. So all it takes is a few cells that are present and then they'll mutate and you know can be implanted in other parts of the body and become and basically don't don't uh, respond to iodine. And so in that situation we really are talking about cancer cells that have genetic mutations and this kinase inhibitor is hopefully helping to address one of those mutations that has resulted in this protein that is now overactive. Correct. So if you can inhibit it. So, you know, a lot of a lot of the things that we hear about with cancer these days is that the treatment is changing and there's a lot more molecular biology going into discovering some of that treatment. So kinase inhibitors might be useful for more than just thyroid cancers. They might be useful for other tumors as well. Correct. One of the first drugs of the you know recent drugs that were approved for thyroid cancer is serafinib and it's been you know, shown to be a benefit in kidney cancer. And so it already got FDA approved for kidney cancer. And then in 2013, it was approved for thyroid cancer. So, um, and you're right, so it can other, it can, you know, be useful in other other types of uh, cancers. Do you think we're going to find, if if these kinase inhibitors don't work, is the research heading towards finding some of these other, maybe pre-existing genetic tumor treatments for other cancers that we could apply to thyroid? Are there studies going on looking at that now too? Yeah, there's studies uh, uh, against a single target called BRAF. And um, BRAF is a gene that is um, 
present within the tumor, so it's not a gene where it's passed on that it, hereditary. But um, there, there's been some studies using using uh, a drug that was approved for melanoma in the past called vemurafenib. And so, um, you know, we don't know the results of that, but that's something that's becoming very specific now. I think what's going to be um, important um, also is immunotherapy, I think, down, down the road. Maybe not in the immediate future, but, you, you know, um, in the, I think it's, it's going to be an option. But this needs to be studied. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of great work going on in the field of oncology. A lot of stuff that people never thought of before. I know when I was in training, we would think of all cancers as the same. Once you got a cancer, they all behave the same if it was in the same family of cancer. So all follicular cancer would behave the same. All papular cancer would behave the same. All breast cancer would behave the same, etc. And now we're finding actually that people's tumors have different genetic mutations and the treatment for cancer has becoming much more personalized. Absolutely. I think we're eventually going to move towards treat the tumor and only the tumor and probably look at our some of our systemic chemotherapies that killed good cells and bad cells as you know 50 years from now I think we'll turn around and go wow that was pretty barbaric. Mm-hmm. But we just don't have that technology mastered yet. I think we're, we're getting there, it. you know, we're one getting of the, there. Yeah, one of the first drugs that was shown to be a benefit in solid tumors was Gleevec, also known as imatinib for GI stromal tumors. So, I think that's what started the the wave as far as solid tumors. So. We're getting there slowly but surely. All right, NTK, so that's where you're at now. You're you're dealing with these metastases, these cancer spread cells in the hip and in the lung, and you're going to be looking at kinase inhibitors and taking those and seeing how you do. Yes. All right. Well, anything else you want to share with us today? No. Um, <clears throat> I'd just like to tell those who are listening that are in the same situation that I am that uh, you need to trust your doctors. I have um, a team of doctors that I trust with my life. Also, look to your family for support and um, continue to follow up with your doctors. That um, Don't miss your appointments and uh, don't think that it's going to go away on its own. Really important advice. Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing your story, coming forward and saying, hey, I've had this problem, but also sharing that with all of us and giving us all great points of advice that we can really look to and hold on to for life. Yes, Dr. And just, Marita. And just to add on that, he is taking a, a kinase inhibitor and, you know, he's going to work functioning. And um, so, it, you know, there are side effects, but he's very functional. Excellent. Well, best of luck to you, TK, and I'd love to hear more about how this kinase inhibitor works for you and if we are able to be successful enough to just stop this tumor in its tracks. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. Aleka, Aleka Pahinui, you had some problems with thyroid cancer yourself. Tell us a little bit about how that was diagnosed and how that all transpired, and tell us your story. Um, The first time I was diagnosed was after I had my son, my second child, when I was 23. Just from a regular checkup, they felt a tumor, I mean a lump. They felt a lump. It was yeah. a mystery, and you had to get it checked out. So then they okay. did an ultrasound, biopsy, then it came up as papillary cancer. Then I had surgery, reductive iodine, like him. And then I was okay for a while till I got pregnant with my third child in 2007. Okay. I had it again. So they did surgery again, and then a couple years later I had it again. 
So it just kept coming back. Yeah, it just kept coming back. Okay. So then that was three. Then after the, my third surgery, my oncologist um, referred me to Dr. Marita because he, he thought he was really good, which he is. <laughs> I would agree with so, that. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and I was pregnant when I had my fourth surgery. So I went in. That's a tricky situation. Yep. Okay. So I had to wait till I was in my second trimester. It was scary. I was scared. But it ended up okay. But then after I had my daughter, um, through blood tests, it looked bad. My thyroglobulin. That's how they could always. They were measuring a blood yep. test, monitoring something. That's how they could body. always tell. Okay. For me, anyways. It was mm-hmm. always elevated. So then I had my surgery again when my daughter was six weeks old. That was my last surgery I had. And then, oh, so I had three reductive iodine treatments. Okay. For, with the first three surgeries. Then, of course, after my fourth surgery, I couldn't do anything because I was pregnant. So then after my last surgery, I had the external um, radiation, the beams. Okay. Sure. And that seemed to help. I haven't, it hasn't grown back since. Okay. Plans to have another kid? No, I haven't. I was going to say, it seems like pregnancy is not doing <laughs> well by you. That's what they think, yep. Okay. And these kids you do have owe you big time. Yes. <laughs> as all children owe their mothers. Right. I am in debt always. Okay. All right. And so so right now you're doing well. Yes. Okay. Uh, Dr. Marita, tell us a little bit about this history. It seems like, boy, every time Aleka got pregnant, something bad was going to happen, and it was going to happen to her thyroid. Mm-hmm. Is this a common story? Uh, it's not a classic story. Um, okay. What is, I, I think it doesn't surprise me. Again, she was diagnosed at a very young age. She was 23 mm-hmm. and that, uh, and, and it recurred. You know, up to 25% of patients who have papillary thyroid cancer will recur. It's typically in the neck, so we're able to surgically remove the disease. But again, it, it just wasn't responding to iodine. And, you know, she does have some growths in her, lu- in her lungs. She's clear of in the neck. Uh, and that's why she's contemplating, um, you know, start initiating a kinase inhibitor therapy. Now, these growths are not large. She's she's functional. She's raising her children. She's not having a difficult time breathing. And that's why thyroid cancer, again, can be very uh, dif- difficult to treat when it's, um, when it's, you know, metastasized because patients can look fine, do you know, do well. And some of these uh, kinase inhibitors have side effects. So you're potentially risking making this patient, you, you know, sort of quality You're a mom. Blood. You've got three kids. you got to right. raise them. you got to right. take care of them. So, you know, you really have to make a decision here. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take a medicine that could potentially help you in the future, but right now maybe mm-hmm. have side effects? What are the common side effects to the kinase inhibitors? It can be affect the skin, so they can have a rash. Um, they can have diarrhea and just overall fa- fatigue, you know. And Things you don't need as a mom or right. as anybody, mm-hmm. really. I mean, nobody needs to experience those, but okay. But again, again, this is this cla- a story that we wanted to emphasize that n- not every patient with thyroid cancer gets surgery, their iodine, and they're you know done. Done. I mean, the patients that you know recur, they you know we have you know we we're fortunate to be able to to take care of them. Um, but it is uh, they're very brave, and it's it's again they're it's not easy to take care of because most patients again will respond to iodine, but up to five to fifteen percent of the time. The iodine, again, will be, you know, look, you listen to her story. I mean, she had three, three sessions. Sure. Remember, when you get to 1,000 millicuries, you start worrying about leukemia. That's why you can't keep blasting, you know, patients with all this iodine because it can cause a secondary cancer, uh, leukemia. So. so you have to be extra careful with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. 
Okay. And Aleka, how do you feel now? I feel fine. I mean, I never did have any. You never felt bad? Yeah, I never felt okay. any. I had no idea. <laughs> All right. And so did anybody in your family have this thyroid cancer? Was there any, um, any anybody no. you know of? Nothing. Just thyroid problems okay. on my dad's side, but never cancer. Never thyroid cancer. So other thyroid issues, maybe right. underthyroid, yeah. Hyper. underactive no, or like, overactive. Yeah. And so there was some kind of thyroid mm-hmm. thing going on on your dad's side, mm-hmm. but not a cancer. No. Okay. Does she need to worry about her kids? No, I don't think she, I don't think With there's family a, history of, of no. I, I, I don't I don't think so, um, but I think um, she was diagnosed at such a young young mm-hmm. age. But I think it's something to you know. I don't think we need to do an extra um, sort of genetic test right now. But I do think you know she needs to you know be more diligent as far as getting physical exams and whatnot. As far as, sure, and monitoring yeah. and keeping an eye on mm-hmm. things. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you too, Aleka, for sharing your thank story you. and really explaining us that sometimes you have no symptoms. Mm-hmm. And we know that women after pregnancy sometimes have thyroid issues, mm-hmm. issues being underactive thyroid or sometimes overactive thyroid. But uh, it certainly seems that you had a much bigger issue than that. Right. <laughs> and you handled it like a champion. Let's hope that this just stays nice and quiet and you don't have problems in the Thank future. You. You're going to need to raise those three kids. Right. They're going to need four. four <laughs> kids. They're going to need, oh, they're definitely going to need some help. Uh, four kids and siblings. I'm one of four and we didn't always get along as well right. as we do now, but you know, I'm sure that, that there's some sibling rivalry and stuff going on there. <laughs> you've got to keep on top of, but uh, lucky that there are some options for you now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for thank sharing you. your story as well. Sure. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shane Morita, and we just heard from two folks who have been down that road, TK and Aleka, both patients of Dr. Morita, who have had some circumstances where their thyroid cancer was treated initially and then decided to come back. And the good news is there's some new treatments out there that are Novel therapies for those people for whom iodine is no longer effective. Good to know we're doing some research in this area. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on with thyroid cancer. Is there a genetic or maybe not genetic, but ethnic predisposition here in the islands? And what should people be doing about that? As always, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. If you've ever had thyroid cancer, we'd love to hear from you and hear what your experience was like and how treatment went and how you feel today. So we'll be right back after this quick break. You can join us at any time. Just stay right there. Hello, this is Dr. Rohinton J. Patel from Hawaii Pacific Dental. I'm one of the underwriters for Hawaii Public Radio and proud to do it. I've been an underwriter for several years, almost a decade now. Um, I find I like relatively unbiased news that we obtain from NPR in the morning. I rely on it myself for news, and I find it a very valuable resource for our community. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership building community. If you think you're seeing more bees these days, you could be right. Next time on The Conversation, we'll check in with Anthony Maxfield. He's the president of the Hawaii Beekeepers Association, and we'll talk about the status of Varroa and the apparent return of the bees. We'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation.
You're listening to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shane Morita. We're talking about thyroid cancer and why, you might ask, because there's an increased incidence that seems to be occurring in thyroid cancer, despite a general decrease in some of the other cancers people get concerned about. Uh, Colon cancer is on the decrease, lung cancer, prostate cancer, stomach cancer. A lot of cancers are going down as far as recent statistics. But the National Cancer Institute is showing that certain cancers are going up, and thyroid is one of those. Dr. Shane Morita is here in the studio. He is an endocrine and oncologic surgeon at Queen's Surgical Oncology Program. He's the director as well as clinical faculty for John A. Burns School of Medicine and the University of Hawaii Cancer Center. And he's going to be talking about thyroid cancer a little bit uh, later this month. We're going to hear a little bit more about when that is and what sorts of topics we're going to be discussing. As always, you can join us. And if you've ever had thyroid cancer, we'd kind of like to hear your story, too. It was great to have TK and Aleka on the show sharing their experience. And lots of folks can learn from what other folks have experienced. And that way we can all hopefully stay healthy together. So you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Marina, tell me about your upcoming lecture because it's coming up pretty soon. And that's a great opportunity for people to hear more about thyroid cancer. Right. We're going to talk about thyroid cancer, um, the basics. We're going to talk about thyroid nodules. Most thyroid cancer emanates from a nodule. Um, we're going to talk about what's happening in Hawaii and I. Just like today, we're going to have some patient perspectives on different types of thyroid cancers and different scenarios. Nothing is more powerful than hearing from somebody who's walked down that road to hear how they got there, what their experience has been, and what they've learned. Absolutely. Great information for everybody. Now, this is up and coming. It's going to be Wednesday, August 26th. That's from 5.30 to 7 o'clock p.m. It's free. It's at the Queen's Conference Center. You can register online, or you can call the Queen's Referral Line at 691-7117. That's a way that you can let them know you're coming. But, again, what a great opportunity to hear more about the thyroid and what are some of the symptoms of cancer. What do you do if you feel a lump in your neck, and what should happen once you get this taken care of, treated, worked up by your doctor, etc. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the local situation here in the islands. Is there Are there certain ethnic groups that tend to get more thyroid problems than others? You know, what we see in Hawaii is when we've done some research, and this has already been um, previously done by other investigators too at uh, UH Cancer Center, but we see thyroid cancer um, um, affecting the Filipinos quite a bit. So about if you look at all the thyroid cancer cases, uh, that we see annually, which is way more, way over 200, 250, um, ab- about 25 to 30% are Filipinos. And that's more statistically than any other ethnic group? Correct. Okay. Any ideas why? You know, there's there, to me, there's got to be uh, some type of hereditary susceptibility, and, you know, we're, we're investigating that. Also, it could be diet, um, and, and, you know, many of the patients, at least that I've taken care of who are Filipinos, they've come from the Philippines as well. So, you know, there might be an environmental uh, factor as well. So if you're Filipino born and raised here in the islands, that may not be as great of a risk as if you are Filipino born and raised in the Philippines, at least not statistically what you see. Yeah. But, you know, I I think um, it's, there's just so much Honestly, that we don't, and just to be, you know, transparent with this, there's so much that we need to to learn about it because if we talk to a lot of um, 
physicians that have been here for quite some time, and they they all agree that they've seen a lot of Filipino women. Uh, when the folks that they've seen have with thyroid cancer, are, many of them are Filipino women. So there, there's just a, a lot that we need to learn about thyroid cancer. Now, how can thyroid cancer be screened for? Is that that neck exam we were talking about earlier, just feel to see if there's any right. masses, any nodules, any marbly kind of things right. that if, feel hard? Right. You know, go to self-examination um, and also awareness. I, I will tell you, um, get a lot of referrals from gynecologists. I think they're very, very good. They include the thyroid in their physical exam. Um, but again, now we're seeing it with patients who have, other types of cancers or get CAT scans or MRIs for different things, you know, whether it be uh, something with, you know, just neck pain. Um, If you feel a lump, um, go see your doctor. And the first test usually that I recommend is an ultrasound because it's non-invasive and there's no radiation um, associated with that. And that can help characterize a thyroid nodule. Many patients have, many uh, individuals have have thyroid nodules, um, but only about 5% of all thyroid nodules are cancerous. So not all nodules are bad. Correct. Some nodules could be okay. You might be able to watch them like we heard uh, TK watched it for a while and did some procedures before it was diagnosed. But if you have any questions or concerns, always best to bring it up to your doctor and figure out what else you need to do. What's your next step? Right. If you, I, you know, if you discover a lump or your doctor discovers a lump, you know, really get an ultrasound. Do to, something to about it. it. Get an ultrasound. Right. And it's not that uncommon to get an ultrasound and have to repeat it in six months or repeat it in a year to Correct. see if anything's continuing to grow. Correct. So don't be fearful of it. If you if you feel something, get it checked out. And mm-hmm. if there is something, five percent of those could be cancerous, Correct. but not a hundred percent. Correct. Okay. And out of those 5%, we talked a little bit that most of those are going to be the papillary cancer, then follicular, and we mentioned the other types that could be related. Where do you see the future of thyroid cancer research going? You know, we've sort of moved towards this personalized tumor sort of research. And I know with other types of cancers, they're actually looking at doing genetic profiles of tumor cells so that they can determine what is the most appropriate therapy for someone, whether it be traditional chemotherapy or immunotherapy or other types of therapies. Where do you see us going with thyroid? I think the same with many other solid tumors. I think profiling the tumor, you know, we did um, more of a selective um, uh, profiling, if you will, for BRAF, which I mentioned order. It's, It's an oncogene um, so it's seen in about 50% of thyroid cancer, um, that being papillary, it's sort of con- conventional. So when we um, looked at the Filipino population, um, we found it to be about 85%. And that's a, a small study. It was under 100 patients, but we reported that our findings in Washington, D.C., so there's a lot of in- interest because I think, um, you know, f- you know, individuals on the continental U- U.S. I don't think have our ethnic diversity. And so sometimes um, thyroid cancer, like other cancers, get, get placed in a certain um, you know category, but not everybody is aware that there is some ethnic variations. And we even looked into um, outcome, and de- there was definitely differences in, in outcome as well. Um, and so I think there's a lot to um, that we can contribute here as investigators um, from Hawaii. 
Absolutely. I think our multi-ethnic population really lends itself to doing some research studies. Traditionally, they've always said, how come research studies are just done in a bunch of white men? And that doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. So, you know, back when I was in medical school, there was a huge push to include women into a lot of research studies. But now I think we're recognizing that there are ethnic variations to what happens with various medical problems, Mm -hmm. whether it be cancer or diabetes or blood pressure, et cetera. And now we really have to look at what are those variations and how can they affect treatment? Now, you mentioned that you've seen some changes in outcome. Like, what sorts of differences do you see in the outcomes? Well, again, it was it was a, a, a small study, but when we looked at our Filipino fo- population, uh, most patients with thyroid cancer, with, with papillary thyroid cancer, the, the five-year survival is way over 95%. You're looking close to 98%. But... Um, for us, it was we found it to be around eighty five percent. So, in the Filipinos, so again, there and we took classic uh, conventional papillary thyroid cancer, um, but I think uh, we just need to expand that. So I'm, I actually applied for and was granted permission to look at the National Cancer Database, which is a large, you know, large pool of all the major, um, you know, cancer registries. So I'm going to be embarking on that, and that's going to be one of my questions to look at, you know, the Filipino population in a, in a larger um, sample size to see if, if some of our preliminary data, um, you know, if that's congruent. Absolutely. Let's see if it reflects what we're seeing mm-hmm. nationally. And if so, that may take us in a different research direction than we may have expected. So when we talk about folks who have thyroid cancer, you just mentioned the majority of them with papillary cancer, which is the most common, do extremely well. In general, with the different types of thyroid cancer, we said anaplastic is usually the worst. Yes. Do people generally do okay with the medullary, follicular, and hurdle cell thyroid cancers, or are, are some of those worse than others? Yeah, so the way I kind of look at it is um, papillary and follicular in general, most patients do very well, and hurdle cell is sort of you know, a little bit better or also known as oncocyte, a little bit better um, than, than medullary. And medullary is kind of in the middle. Then anaplastic, the, the outcome is, is, is bad. It's, it's a very tough, tough disease. So um, the other thing, sometimes if you look at a lot, um, a lot of the data, the, the different types of subtypes of thyroid cancer that I mentioned, papillary, follicular, they also have, um, they'll discuss the differentiation, meaning how does it look under the microscope um, in relation to other normal cells. so How weird does it right. really look? And sometimes it can be poorly differentiated. So Mr. Hahnemann, for example, who was on, he had actually poorly differentiated thyroid cancer that's f- follicular-based. So again, we know that those patients aren't, are going to be much more aggressive. So, and they may need closer follow-up. So, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's there's a lot more to take care of thyroid cancer than just, removing it and doing iodine uh, ablation uh, after it, it's, it can be challenging. Well, and you brought up a really good point, which is, you know, cancer cells are cells that have some weird mutation that makes them want to reproduce endlessly and not do what normal cells do, which is have a programmed time when they stop 
living. I mean, most cells will die at some point, and that's considered normal. So when we have these cells that kind of got really strange, very often it's because of genetic mutations. That's what we're finding. Mm -hmm. And the stranger they get, the harder they are to treat. So well-differentiated, which would be a cell that looks almost like normal, but it's just maybe growing too much or just not following the general path that normal cells would, those cells tend to be easier to treat. But when we get those poorly differentiated, those really weird-looking cells that have more genetic mutations than not, those tend to be the ones that kind of sneak around and go to those other places of the body where we can't find them. Absolutely. And, you know, and you mentioned, again, these genetic mutations. So when we, also, when we looked at our population of Filipinos, we found, again, 80, about 85% uh, BRAF um, uh, positivity. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy even with BRAF, but there is now recent data saying that it can be uh, demonstrating that it can lead to a high risk of recurrence, meaning if you control for all the factors, the tumor size and whatnot, age, gender, that there is, it starts to um, kind of declare itself that it can lead to an increased risk of recurrence. So, um, but that's for conventional, you know, papillary thyroid cancer. So um, we don't see BRAF and other types of thyroid cancers as, as relative. Have we found a way to target the BRAF yet? Well, there's a drug that I had mentioned, vemurafenib. Um, that, you know, those trials are ongoing. We don't know all the final results of it. But um, a lot of these, uh, these targeted therapies, I will tell you, the, the cancers are very small. We see that with melanoma, for example, because melanoma patients will have BRAF, the same BRAF target, and the tumor will respond, they'll shrink, but then the, 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 the cancer is smart enough to develop these acquired resistance and alternate pathways. So I think in the future, we really need to start using combination uh, therapy. So that's why these kinase inhibitors, um, at least for thyroid cancer, hasn't, hasn't really demonstrated a complete cure. It, it helps with survival, but not a complete cure. Uh, it helps with what we call progression-free survival, but not an outright, you know. Um, well, until the cell know. finds something else to find a way to get around it. We talk about mutating Correct. viruses. People don't realize, you know, the flu virus mutates, but guess what? Cancer cells mutate as well, and they can become resistant to different types of chemotherapy. That's kind of something I think people realize is, does chemo work or not? Has chemo stopped working? Because when they think of traditional chemotherapy, we understand that at some point the tumor might become resistant, but maybe even more so with some of these genetic mutations because we're trying to treat just one, mm -hmm. and they may have four or five different genetic mutations, but boy, if they stop becoming susceptible to one, wouldn't it be great to just deluge somebody with the blocking of four or five different mutations? Sure. But we've got more research to do. We've got to discover more. Absolutely. Do you think we have enough funding nationwide to be able to, to really attack this problem comprehensively? I think for thyroid cancer, and you bring up a good point, um, less than 2,000 patients will die a year of thyroid cancer because most patients do very well. But again, we don't, we don't emphasize the recurrence can be up to 25%. Do we have enough funding? Um, I, I think we need more for thyroid cancer, qu quite honest. It's not considered a lethal malignancy like pancreatic cancer, for example. You know, I also study melanoma, and I think that has gained a lot um, because patients, again, uh, a lot of patients die from melanoma, but not necessarily thyroid cancer. So hopefully, um, you know, there will be more funding in the future for these patients because it is still a, a very difficult cancer to treat when it hasn't responded to iodine. Absolutely. And I think for those folks who are in that situation, you know, whether or not everybody else is there, they are. 
and they want to know that there's some money, effort, and research being mm-hmm. put into their particular problem so that hopefully they can live long, productive lives as much as possible. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again for sharing the story, and thank you again to TK and Alika for telling us your experience with this. And let's not forget, you're going to be talking. If anybody thought, boy, I want to know more about it, you know, Wednesday, August 26th, 5.30 to 7, free at Queen's Conference Center. You can look it up online or call their referral line. Uh, you know, that way you can hear more. Dr. Marita is going to be there talking about it and sharing more with us. So thanks for sharing your expertise. If you want to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.